Welcome to a Story That Works podcast, where we're going to write stories, share our work, and show you that if you want to write, all it takes is figuring out your own process. So go do the work, get your stories on the page, and confidently share them. Hi, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Caitlin. And this week, we're going to read for you our writing. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> Or not, you know, if you hated your story. Stories about death. <laughs> you know, to to lighten your load for the day. Let's talk about death. I wish I had, like, one of those soothing voices from, like, NPR or something. Like, let's lighten your load for the day and talk about death. You know, something like that. But I don't, so I give Sounds up. Sounds like the last thing you hear before you <laughs> actually die. Exactly. Um. So before we get to actually reading our writing... Uh, we mentioned it a little bit, but Caitlin, What's up? do you struggle at all with feeling like a fraud as a writer? <laughs> I never know your perspective with these. every damn day. Yeah. How because do you deal with it? No, here's the tea. Like you are always like comparing yourself to me and I am always comparing myself to someone else. And that someone else is always comparing themselves to JK Rowling. Like, I mean, yeah, but so you say. I say I compare myself to you, another, like, non-published writer. You're further along than I am, but... And then you say, oh, yeah, I compare myself to, like, Patrick Ness, who is, you know, on the bestseller list. No, (laughs) So my level of comparison... No. (laughs) ...is different. (laughs) To me, Patrick Ness is, like, the golden standard. Mm -hmm. Patrick Ness isn't, like, oh, like, oh, maybe if I tweak this a little bit. No, like, I don't compare myself to Patrick Ness I just completely admire Patrick Ness okay okay but I mean do you see what I mean where like I say I'm I feel like a fraud because yeah. I can't compete with you and, you're, and you're, like, you're like well I'm more of a fraud than you are <laughs> Which is such do a, you see that it's such a bullshit thing but yes I and I think so I send you lots of which the audience won't be privy to but I send you lots of like I feel like shit I can't do this this story sucks and then you say something like I don't like this story and I'm just like no you're a brilliant writer you're amazing you've got this and you'll send me back like oh I liked your story and I think I I do this thing where I'm just like no like I need you to know the the truth of the world and that truth is that you're amazing and you're a writer and you should feel like a writer and then to myself I'm like you're a fraud (laughs) No one likes your stuff. No one wants to read anything you write. (laughs) I don't know. Like, it's just like this really weird space of being a writer, not feeling like a writer. (laughs) And I think that everyone feels that way. Truly. I hope not. Not that I want other people to feel like shit, but. I'm just like, I don't know. And like, I struggle with giving encouragement because I. I'm very hard on myself. I'm very much like you shouldn't need people to tell you that you are worth it and okay and doing well. Like you shouldn't need that. So to my own self, but then to anyone else, I'd be like, oh my gosh, like what do you need? And also we Except to me apparently. Well, no, but like we communicate a lot of our text and I just hate texting in general. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Or I feel like maybe I forgot that you hated texting. Well, no, it's just... I just maybe over the years I've okay. not enjoyed it as much. But 
So I guess I just think it's important to say again and again and again that every single person feels like a fraud at some point. Like I get V.E. Schwab, like Victoria Schwab, I follow her on Twitter and Instagram and stuff and even she talks about how she feels like a fraud or she doesn't know how to, like she feels like she'll be writing the same story forever because it doesn't come out right. I I just, you know, wanted to nag on you a little bit for (laughs) not telling me I'm amazing every two days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just feel like, like, I'm at the point where it's just, like, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, writing is rejection. Writing is feeling like a fraud. Writing is self-loathing. And that's just what it is, you know? And I just, mm-hmm. like, for me, I just have to pocket that and accept it. And I'm trying to. I'm very much in that process. And I intellectually understand, like, yeah, you're going to get rejected. And that's okay. I have no qualms with getting rejected. Like, I'll send out stories I'll let people read my writing at least the stuff that I'm kind of comfortable with and I know none of it's perfect and it probably never will be because what is perfect but I still I like that fear of feeling like a quote-unquote real writer versus feeling like a fraud and I know that there's the whole fake it till you make it camp and like that's kind of what you have to do but when I listen to you say like this story just popped into my head and it was fully formed, and I had that these That really bothered you, didn't it? Well, it shook me. It didn't, like, I'm so happy for you. I love your writing. I love reading all your stories. I think you transport me in time and place to somewhere completely different that I didn't know I needed to be. And I want to do that. You know, like, I think at some level, there's maybe a little bit of the jealousy thing, which I, you know, don't really usually experience. I mean, and it's not like a, oh, I can't even be friends with you anymore because I'm so jealous of your writing. Like, it's, it's nothing like that. It's not like the childish experience of jealousy and, and whatever. Like, I don't need you to write a children's book for me about the little green monster. <laughs> Good, because that's not going to happen. Good. Good. But I think it's realizing how, I don't know, like, I don't feel, and again, writing is as much figuring out yourself as it is figuring out your writing for me and so my process I've really struggled with finding like feeling valid as a person and feeling like I'm worthy and enough and I struggle with that immensely and the whole idea of feeling like I belong and so there's so many levels of that um, and that I think bleed over into the writing and fundamentally just like I find it feeling like you aren't a real writer feeling like you're a complete fraud sort of stops you from actually like doing the work at all yeah and then you'll never know if you don't do the work if you are a writer I guess you said you feel like a fraud as a writer what keeps you going I mean sometimes I don't keep going (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, what's the longest amount of time you've gone without writing like uh, two to three months maybe longer I mean, I know it's a personal thing, right? Like, yeah, I'm learning that it's just complicated. And like, we're put in positions where we're constantly comparing ourselves, not only to like, the authors whose books we read for off the shelves, but like other writers on Twitter and mm-hmm. just our peers, because there's that constant like stream of like these people are getting more attention than me or these people wrote more than me today or these people have more of a following or more of an online presence or have written more novels and it's just like this constant thing 
Yeah, and I think that's where that really comes from, or at least it's a huge factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it should stop us from writing because obviously the only person we can really compete with is ourselves. You can only yeah. do better than you did the day before. It doesn't make it any easier. So do you call yourself a writer? Do you call yourself an aspiring writer? What's your take on, on the word aspiring? Do you use it? Do you hate I mean, I it? Think, feel like aspiring author is applicable. Okay. But... When do you feel like you can call yourself a writer? I don't... Th- I mean, like I used to think I wasn't allowed to because I didn't have a degree. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was a lot published. of people feel... Or because I was young. Yeah. You know, and I feel like, I mean, it's kind of like looking at it from that perspective. It's like, well, that's stupid. Like, I write and I love writing and therefore here I am. And then on the other side of it, it's like, not everyone can do this. So I don't know. I just feel like you just do. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like so many of my answers is like literally boils down to you just do. Which I think is important. Like, yeah, like, how do you keep going? How do you get past it? How do you deal with rejection? Like, you just do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, do whatever you do in life and, and just your general life that, like, makes you feel good and makes you feel comfortable and makes you feel okay. And then just keep, like, you learn by doing and you just, you just go. You just do, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know. I feel like people have a lot of opinions about the aspiring writer versus a writer. And there are different camps for that. My opinion is you call yourself a writer when you feel like it. Like whenever you're like, I'm a writer, then you're a writer. And you can tell people that. You can claim that title. The only thing you have to do is write. Like the noun writer comes from or is connected to the verb write, writing. (laughs) Yeah. That was stupid. But like, (laughs) (laughs) I was curious if you had any sort of opinion. I think you're right. The... The aspiring author thing, sure. But if you've written a story, you have authored a story. I mean, you might right. not be officially But I feel like the, the but... connotation of author is, yeah. here's this book that I wrote. But, I mean, even so, and right, I mean, and it's so weird because everything else has such a specific criteria. Like, you can't call yourself a doctor unless you're a dead-ass doctor. <laughs> you can't say that you're a... Uh, I actually know somebody that put doctor on a credit card they're not a doctor in any way shape or form but well i mean you can but like <laughs> not yeah yeah uh, i yeah i mean it's such a we've said this before but it's such a weird space it like it's a very it comes with being a writer comes with unique challenges and and a specific set of issues which i mean what doesn't come with issues but yeah, there are issues for sure. Lots and lots. Um, and then last week you kind of touched on reading as a writer and how you use it to to learn and grow. But do you have anything specific you'd like to say about what kinds of books? Like, do you read young adult books when you're writing your young adult stories? Do you try and avoid them? Do you have any strong opinions on that? Oh, I read young adult all the time. And only young adult? Do you? I mean, you, you've read other well, things, but... Oh, yeah. I mean... It's funny because when I was like 19, I was reading like all the classics, well, not all the classics, but like I was reading like literary fiction mm-hmm. and like adult and whatever. And now that I'm old, I just gravitate towards young adult. 
which I'm not really sure why, but yeah, that's mainly what I read in comic books. <laughs> and is that why you write young adult? Because you read it? Or do you have any specific, like... Reasoning? Yeah. I just... I don't know, like, young adult books are, like, the reason why I love to read. Even though, like, like when I was... Like, I didn't really read that much until I got to middle school and I read, like, Ugly's Pretty Specials and, like, Twilight, as you know. And at the time, <laughs> as much as I could say about Twilight, like, Twilight was a huge part in, like, developing my love for reading. And that's only because you couldn't read Harry Potter. Like you weren't allowed. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I don't know. Like the I'm books kidding. that have had the books that have had the biggest impact on my life. Like I like met some of my best friends because of we bonded over the Hunger Games. And I mean, the Chaos Walking trilogy is one of the most beautiful stories I've ever read. And I feel like young adult gets so put down because it's for teenagers and people look at young adult and they think of twilight, mm -hmm. you know, and they think of silly romance and whatever, but it's just so young adult is just like, you can just do so much with it and mm -hmm. it has so much potential and possibility and so there's not any sort of themes that you like like the idea of a maturation plot or something like you're not like oh that appeals to me so much you're just oh I, I just like that you can do anything with it well no I mean like when I was younger I loved the idea of revolution and being Katniss Everdeen and whatnot and I was when I was younger younger I loved the idea of that romantic element of love triangles and Edward watching me sleep and whatever. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> and I don't know. I just developed such an appreciation for it beyond all of that. Cause it was escapism when I was younger, I wanted to be transported somewhere else, anywhere, but where I was. And now I'm drawn to young adult because it lacks the snootiness of literary and it lacks the density of science fiction, mm -hmm. fantasy, you know. And it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's hard to put into words because, like, obviously I'm not reading about 16-year-olds and being like, this is me. I see myself in this situation. And, like, I'm at that point where I, like, can't suspend my disbelief in a lot of, like, the romantic plot subplots and whatever. And, like, I'm not looking for an escape. I just feel like there's a certain like magic in something that is intended for people who are young and like mm -hmm. they're not jaded yet by the world and cynical and like they believe in harrowing love stories and being heroic and changing things you I know there's almost it's like a rule free zone like you can literally do anything yeah Right. And I struggled a lot. Senior year of high school, I took AP English, and I remember having to read all the literary stories and just being like, this is boring. I love reading, but, like, I need to find something. You know, I felt like I was immature, and I shouldn't be reading and enjoying all of these young adult stories. And I got to a point where I was like, fuck it. I will read what I want to read. But one thing I think that – or I guess a couple things that popped up during that time were Ready Player One and – the Night Circus, and both of those were adult stories, or they're shelved in the adult section. Yes. But they're still this sort of rule-free, like, adventurous, 
just place. They're very enchanting. Yeah. And I, I feel like a lot of adult stories sort of lack that. And the young adult space has just blown up with those kinds of stories that you're like, it's a free for all. And so I really enjoy that. But I also, I, your writing, and I don't say this lightly, but your writing just fits that. Like the story you wrote for The Abandoned Couch and even this one, like your perspective and the characters you create and the problems they come up with, like just feels like it's right. It, it just like it found a home in the uh, young adult space. Yeah. And I'm not sure mine do. Um, and I, I don't know, like, I guess it kind of depends on I have to write different things and, and um, see sort of what comes up. But a lot of the things that I used to struggle with or that I think young adult stories do really well is like that maturation that I don't know who I am. And I, I feel like there's a, a difference once you hit your, your 20s that's more like... I know who I am, but I don't know how to be that person. Or It's like a different set of challenges that I think the adult world speaks to. And I'm kind of facing those enough now that I feel like maybe that's what I should be writing. I mean, there's nothing you quote unquote should be doing, right? But I don't, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I found sort of a home for where my writing fits and what, it should, like, what I want it to do and what I want to do with it. But I, I do really feel like yours just, it is perfect in that space and I really enjoy that about it like you know what you do you know who you are and yet another reason I'm like ugh Caitlin I wish I was with her (laughs) 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 but anyways on that note unless you have something else you want to add like we should probably read our writing let's do it okay I don't want to I don't want to hear mine out loud well you gotta so (laughs) I don't have a title for mine and I realized that last time either that we don't really we didn't do titles but I hate I hate coming up with titles sometimes a title is like my in for the story it hasn't been the case for these last two ones so I don't have a title but here you go here's my story death is measured in casseroles tuna pasta rice to be fair Mrs. Stacy did bring lasagna though it wasn't her recipe she stole it from her sister-in-law and not the one she liked Not that she'd admit it, but she told me years ago in a drunken state at a book club and I've never forgotten. We tried to eat two before realizing death also staunched appetites. The rest went into the freezer, which seemed to expand to hold the food and our grief all in one. I'm not sure how that's possible, but if any more come, I'll have to upgrade. Organize the flower arrangements. Death would be a lot easier if it occurred only to people who deserved it. If my husband's passing had uncovered a secret affair or second family, for example, the anger might fill the utterly empty feeling for a while, giving me something to feel. Instead, I'm hollow, and there's nothing to fill that hollowness but casserole. That and the homemade cheesecake Mrs. Jones prepared. Damn her and her deliciously fattening desserts. Coordinate extended family's sleeping arrangements. I never thought I'd wish to be haunted, that I'd genuinely beg whatever spirit realm existed to send me the ghost of my beloved to stay with me for all eternity, mostly because I have a feeling that ghosts aren't happy. I think they want to move on, but haven't been able to for whatever reason, and they'd never wish that on anyone except my husband. 
I wish it on him, and I don't even care that we wouldn't be able to touch each other, that we'd never share another warm embrace. I just want to hear his voice, to see his smile, to get his advice on what size freezer would fit all these casseroles so that I don't get tricked into purchasing something I know I don't need. Clean the house. I saw the neighborhood wives standing outside my house the other day, like they were holding a town meeting on my porch, deciding whether or not to knock on the door and come in. It's just like Mrs. Stevens. I think I heard her say something like, you know, for the children. And if that bitch thinks she's coming to my house to help me raise my children after my husband died, she's got another thing coming. They didn't knock, didn't barge in. I think they don't know what to do with me now, besides bring casserole. Clean the neighbor's casserole dishes, label them, and return to each neighbor as they complete their obligatory second check-in. I wonder if I'll have to move away, if the way they treat me, as if they're wearing kid gloves, will cause me to go insane. I'm sure they don't have this problem in big cities. You could lose a loved one and never once have to tell your neighbors to explain in excruciating detail to describe what it felt like when the police knocked on your door. You'd never have to watch their eyes soaking up every word, wondering if they're just curious, wanting to share your grief, or something worse. Plus, you'd never have to drive anywhere again, to fear the very thought of getting in a car, because the public transportation is sure to be better than it is here. Call the kids' school to excuse their absences. They tell you grief is easier when you lean into the positive moments, when you cement the good times in your mind. That's bullshit. I want to scream at the universe to tell it to go fuck itself, to take someone else instead. But when you make those bargains, you never know who will lose their life for your happiness. Though I'm not sure I'd care at this point. That someone else's family might be stronger, more able to deal with loss, less likely to completely lose their minds at the thought of continuing to exist without that person by their side. Clean the house again. I pretended I wasn't home when Mrs. Williams came by the other day. She knew I was. I knew she knew I was. But neither of us seemed to care. I'm sure she's going to talk to the other women about me. They'll come up with a clean solution to the, quote, McCafferty problem, as I'm sure they'll call it. Joke's on them. I'm not a problem. I'm just too busy to let them in, too embarrassed to let them watch me scoop their casseroles into the garbage disposal. I wouldn't want to hurt their feelings. I'm not cruel. Curl up in bed and never get out. Why do we have such a small period of time with which to grieve? Why do other people get to determine how long that period of time lasts? Why don't they tell us when it's over? When they no longer want us to talk about those we've lost because it makes them uncomfortable, they should let us know it's over, that our time to freely talk has ended. Because it would save me time to know when it's appropriate to talk about my pain and when I'm required to lock it away to slowly go insane by myself. The end. Fierce. Eh. Okay. Your turn. Okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> All right, kids. Okay. All right. Something just fell out of the sky. Yeah, I thought. No shit. Gilmanton wasn't known for much. If anything, its only significant quality was the totality of its insignificance. Tucked between a wide expanse of Wisconsin farmland, you only came across the unincorporated town if you had a reason to be there, 
or if you'd had the misfortune of being born somewhere between Tay's Cattle Farm and Severson's Junkyard slash Pumpkin Patch slash Ice Cream Shop. Not literally. There's a hospital 45 minutes east, but you get it. We have basketball games, hunting season, and we put on the best 4th of July fireworks show in the region. Tonight, it seems like everything is falling out of the sky. Mom, I'm serious, Nick Turner declares as he tugs at his mother's sleeve. His words fill the brief gaps between thunderous booms. Something just fell. Shh, Melanie Turner hisses at her son as if his soft voice could drown out the wild cacophony overhead. The fireworks reflect in her eyes, wide and, wide and ignorant to her child's wandering attention. I just saw it, over there. Little Nick points beyond the pond, out towards the cornfield, where he was supposedly conceived after senior prom. Will you stop? Melanie begs, straining her voice so that she can be heard over the fireworks without openly yelling. There's nothing falling, just sparks. All around us, glitter descends in showers of light, fading just before meeting the water below. Every year, this is the place to be on the 4th. These people can turn the sky above the pond into Times Square on New Year's Eve, and any cop passing by will just grab a beer and watch right along with the rest of us. Even I have to give them credit for it. With the stars competing with these man-made wonders of color and explosion, the scene is a marvel. Excessive, yes. Dangerous? Don't ask. At least we've all still got our eyebrows. But I'm not watching the fireworks. That's why I miss whatever Nick Turner thinks he saw fall out of the sky and why I nearly cry out when Alexa Weaver, my lifelong neighbor, grabs my shoulder from behind. Come with me, she whispers, though it's cut off by a shimmering crackle. Hurry. What is it, I ask, more irritated than I mean to be. Alexa. Alexa's face is washed in the purple in the purple from the blossoming peony erupting above us. Her summer tan absorbs it like warped sunlight, mingling with the unruly curls spiraling out of her head. She has too much makeup on, applied with an untrained hand and then reapplied for good measure. She wears a baggy sequined romper and a pair of worn-out flip-flops coated with a permanent layer of dirt and sand. You don't get to look like that in a town this small and go unnoticed. And, and Alexa loves every side-eyed judgment thrown her way. Didn't you see it? She asked me. Something fell into the cornfield. I roll my eyes. How many wine coolers have you had? Four, she replies. Now come on, or do you want to sit here and stare at Derek until the world ends? Color rushes into my cheeks, entirely separate from the glow of the night celebration. When I look back to the edge of the pond, Derek Sandin has turned his back on me, focus shifted towards the water. Disappointment is a fledgling in my stomach. We were supposed to come here together, but instead he was seven beers deep with his older brother's hunting buddies. I didn't think so, Alexa says when I don't respond. She takes my hands and I follow, my legs consenting before my brain. We pass my uncle and his drinking gang, Mrs. Stump and her family of seven in the sewing circle, and every other small clan that makes up our population. Nick Turner is still watching the cornfield when Alexa starts leading me towards it. The long grass wraps around my ankles, the air around us alight with lingering smoke as the finale begins. The crowd claps at our backs, cheering louder with each, with each collage of noise. When the fireworks end, the new silence curls in on itself just long enough to hear the footsteps creeping up at my heels. Hey, you running off without me? Derek says, catching up to us easily. Go away, Alexa commands, and my stomach lurches, lurches at the potential confrontation. Alexa is a firework all her own, with none of the patience for boys I seem to have endless amounts of. Don't be rude, Derek retorts, his voice slurred. You're always so rude. If either one of them was going to say anything next, their snark falls away when we all spot the same thing at once smoke not from the sky or the fireworks from the earth for a few more yards after a few more yards a clearing opens up in the cornfield holy shit i say something's there something fallen 
It's small, sleek enough to go unnoticed with, with such overwhelming distractions. The bulk of it is buried in the soil, dug in by its own weight and impact. Shaped like the head of a spear, it appears to be made of some type of metal, so smooth that it reflects the hazy stars like a mirror. Alexa steps lightly towards the new crater in the earth, running her fingers over the material. What is that? Derek asks. Some sort of space junk? I want to tell Alexa to get away from it, to run back and tell someone more equipped to deal with smoking UFOs in the middle of a cornfield. But I find myself taking a step closer, running my eyes over the moonlit mystery before us. My foot lands on something hard, and I see that the crops beneath it have been uprooted by more of this strange metal. I clear this dirt and broken stalks away, revealing what looks like a wing. A plane. No, a ship. A spaceship, Alexa, whis Alexa whispers. You've got to be kidding. No, I say, but the word dies at the feet of the obvious. My disbelief catches up to me for only a moment, and then the top of the ship flies open without warning. Alexa is knocked backwards, landing harmlessly in the dirt. Derek drops the beer he carried with him and lets out a long string of creative profanity. Light reaches out from the new opening in the ship, almost fluorescent in its unnatural glow. For a moment, we all just stand and stare, and I don't even register my own movements before I'm gazing down inside. I don't know what I expected to see, but a body seemed likely. It's a man. At least from up here, it looks like a man. When the smoke clears enough to sharpen the image, I can make out the fine, nearly translucent blue skin that peeks out from a white uniform. Human, but not. Different, but not. Its eyes are open wide, locked on me as Alexa comes to my side. It gasps for air like a fish washed up on land. Alexa slides down and slowly reaches her hand towards it. For a moment, I see nothing but fear spread across the blue face, but it quickly twists into pain. I follow, peering over the intricate buttons and screens that make up the interior of the ship. It's impossibly small, clearly not designed for a long journey. He's dying, Alexa whispers, just as a stream of bright yellow blood bubbles from his lips. I can see it seeping through the uniform at his side, nearly concealed by the elaborate straps holding him in place. I wrap my fingers around the ledge, knowing she's right. His face is strained, his black hair matted with sweat and blood. The sounds that escape his mouth are that of anguish, the first true suffering I've ever heard. Unmistakable and haunting. It, he, grabs my hand and squeezes. The bones of my fingers shift, shift together and I have to bite back a gasp. His eyes dig into me, filled with words I know he can't share. He's asking me for something with those eyes. Begging. And then he dies. Simply. A flash breaks the stillness of the night and I turn to see Derek holding up his phone, taking a selfie with the fallen ship. What the hell are you doing, Alexa snaps. The, the man's hand is still in mine, still warm and full of fading life. I can't bear to look at his face. Look back at his face. I can't bear to look back at his face. What, Derek asks, his voice slurred. Nothing ever happens in this damn town. I'm not missing this. I can see by the way his fingers move frantically over his screen that he's sending that damn selfie to everyone he knows. I move to stop him, to rip his phone from his drunken hands, but Alexa pulls me back. Look, she says. Behind the seat where the man now rests, a much smaller one is cocooned in a miniature version of the ship itself. Its own lid has been removed, and another body, even more impossible than the vessel that carried it here, lies within. Any composure that my adrenaline and subconscious has deployed withers, and I forget to keep breathing. It's a kid, Alexa says, eyes wide and glowing. Not just a kid, baby. Brand new and fast asleep. I can hear shouting in the distance. Whoever Derek told is on their way, likely bringing the entire town along for company. 
soon this ship and this corpse and this baby will be plastered all over the news. Gilmanton won't be well Gilmanton will be anything but insignificant now. Alexa reaches in and undoes the strap securing the baby. It doesn't wake when she lifts it into her arms. We have to take her, she says, a sentence I almost let myself believe I didn't hear. She says it so softly, a whisper to be lost on the wind. Not it, her. I'm not sure how she knows that. What? I ask, bewildered. Take her where? Over here, Derek hollers, tripping himself in drunken excitement. I don't think he's paid enough attention to us to know what we've found, and I have a sudden urgency to keep it that way. Anywhere but here, Alexa says, much more resolute as the voices get closer. Listen to them. They'll take her and do experiments and shit, or they'll just kill her. Reality tumbles through my head, and I know she's right. I know what the dying man was asking of me. Protect what he left behind. Plus, Derek was right. Nothing ever happens here. And this was, well, something. Alexa puts the baby in my arms, wrapping a blanket from the ship tightly around the small body. Warmth radiates into my skin. Go, Alexa says. Take her to the old barn by Taze. I'll meet you there. Where are you going? Nowhere. I'll make sure no one follows you. This whole place is going to be a madhouse in about 20 seconds. I open my mouth to protest once more, but she puts her hands on my shoulders. Behind her, flashlights create a halo around Alexa's wild hair. Derek still hasn't gotten off the ground. Run, Sam, she says. Just run. So I do. And scene. Scene. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Story That Works. For all the past episodes, the show notes, or to connect, visit astorythatworks.com. If you'd like to support the show, click subscribe and leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. As always, keep writing. Thank you.